This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr Hilary Guite. Today we're going to be talking about racism and health and I'm here with Yasmin Nicholas Akai. Hi Yaz. Hi Hilary, it's good to be here. Well, we've got a rather challenging topic today and it's one that most people would prefer not to address. It certainly is. As a white woman doctor steeped in epidemiological research, I've been taught all my life to categorise populations by race, by colour, and that's been to find differences in disease rates. And, you know, the aim is to help, but I understand now some people think that that's racist to do that. Yeah, I know it's difficult to know what to say sometimes. Like, I see myself kind of a bit racially ambiguous, multi-ethnic, and I'm not sure whether I'm fully white or not because of my Turkish background, because the first Turks, of course, they hailed from Central Asia. Okay. Have you ever experienced any racism in healthcare because of that? Well, I think at the time I had a question that was rather weird. I felt a bit uncomfortable by the question, but it wasn't until I sat with it that later I thought, oh, could this have possibly been slightly racist? What was that? Um, I was at a sexual health clinic. It's really important to get regularly checked. And one of the kind of personnel, they asked me with a warning that I could possibly be triggered if I had experienced uh, female genital mutilation. I mean, but it's you're the wrong ethnic group for that to be a significant. Why were they asking you that? Exactly. And prior to that question, I think they were asking me about my background and I had told them that I lived in Turkey for many years. So I think it either stemmed from ignorance because Turkey is generally categorized as a very kind of Muslim country. But of course, it doesn't engage in such practices. Or it could have just been that they ask all kind of Muslim populations this question, which is not my I'm not a part of that population, so that's also like a general misconception. So, Gosh, gosh. Have you had any other experiences of racism in healthcare? Mm. Well, I personally haven't, but um, I was talking to a friend the other day and she said that she experienced it while pregnant and she was at a hospital, she was wearing a hijab and she was getting her blood taken, so getting all of them checked. But she said that the nurse at the time was treating all the typically white patients super nice, but then she happened to faint, so she had a fear of needles, and then she was scolded and treated terribly after that. That's outrageous. I mean, you know, everyone knows blood, needles and pain. They're the three fears or phobias that lead to fainting, and it's so rapid and almost not under personal control. That, that's just unkind. Yeah, exactly. But these things happen. But talking of pregnancy, that's one area, I think, with some shocking disparities in health outcomes for black women and their children, especially in the States, as well as here in the UK. Yeah, it's an area where there's still intense debate about how much is due to genetics and what is due to worse socioeconomic circumstances, and also if culture has a part to play. Let's meet our guests because I think they'll help us through this. Hi, I'm Dr. Monique Rainford. I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist at Yale School of Medicine and author of the book Pregnant While Black. Hi, I'm Angela Saini. I'm a science journalist and author. My third book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, looks at the history of how race was 
invented as a category used by scientists and doctors over the ages and the myths and mistakes that have been made because of the presumption of race. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to jump straight in with our first topic and I'd like to start with you, Monique. In your TED Talk five years ago, you talked about black women in the US at that time being three times more likely to die from pregnancy and childbirth than white women. And you talked in particular about a 35-year-old called Shalon who died from a misdiagnosis of hypertension after she gave birth. Can you briefly tell us her story? So Dr. Shalon Irving was a double PhD and she worked at the CDC. So she was a woman, educated woman with means, who had a successful delivery by cesarean section for other reasons. But after delivery, she had some issues and she kept returning to seek medical care for those issues related to high blood pressure, which was existing. She kept returning, however, it seems, based on everything I've read and know, that the system failed her. They kept telling her everything was okay. They kept telling her she was all right. They kept sending her home. And the last time they sent her home, they gave her a prescription for an antihypertensive pill. And she went home, collapsed. She was immediately rushed to the hospital, life support. And shortly after that, she died. That was within weeks of delivery of her very first child. It's a totally tragic story and one that highly influenced me in my journey to discover more about the disparities that Black women face in America and writing my book, which is to uncover and expose and explain a lot of this problem. So Monique, you put Shalon's death down to racism then? Yes, I do. And racism is a complicated thing because in Angela's book where she, she says race is a construct, it is complicated. So racism is not just about the biases that black women experience in care. That's called implicit bias. Implicit bias is interesting because implicit bias occurs for people who mean well. And then they still give biased cares, as opposed to overt biases when people don't even mean well and they give biased cares. And then, of course, there's race factors that affects people's health. We'll come back to this issue of racism. But as a doctor and as an epidemiologist, I have to ask, could there not be a biological explanation here? I was director of public health in a very mixed ethnic population in London. And when I was there, I was very aware of incredibly high rates of stroke in very young black men and women in their 30s, 40s. And my training was that black people excrete salt more slowly. And this starts in childhood, leading to hypertension from a young age. Again, I also learned that there were differences in three hormones that provide the complex control over our blood pressure, and that's the renin, aldosterone, and your tensin system. So, Angela, let me come to you. You systematically debunk everything that I've just said in your book, Superior. Can you take us through why you think years of epidemiological research that I've learned and taken on board into this particular difference, higher blood pressure in black Africans at younger ages. Why you think it does not have a genetic component? 
Well, first of all, it's not what I think. It's what the experts, epidemiologists, have very painstakingly taken apart and investigated for a number of years now. And I just want to give a little bit of context here. We have to understand that the reason race is used at all in medicine has its basis in the historic construction of race a few hundred years ago by European scientists. They looked around the world. Of course, we know these famous taxonomies created by naturalists like Carl Linnaeus. People like him looked at humans and thought, can we also taxonomize people, human beings? And because there was a very kind of cursory understanding of human difference at the time, these outlandish ideas emerged from that. And some people landed on color as a category, you know, dividing up the world by color, black, white, yellow, red, brown, categories we still use and quite remarkable that we still use them. And not everyone agreed with that. So for example, I have Indian heritage. And in India, you have every kind of skin color from the darkest, darkest black to the whitest, whitest, white skin. So, you know, what what does that really mean then? But anyway, that was taken up and it was largely informed by the politics of the time, the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism, the patterns of economic, political power at that time were divided along continental lines. And so... This became conflated in the public imagination and in the medical imagination as some kind of meaningful way of understanding human variation. And so that lands us to where we are now, where the residual ideas about deep-seated, deep-rooted racial difference exist in the medical literature and haven't always been challenged. And then we get to hypertension. And we know that hypertension is higher among Black Americans and Black Britons, preventable heart disease and stroke resulting from high blood pressure are two to three times more likely to kill a Black American than a white American. So it's very easy for physicians then to draw correlations between some kind of biological difference and race. Now, this was something that was investigated. There was a Canadian epidemiologist called Jay Kaufman and an American hypertension expert, Richard Cooper, who looked at the data properly, who really systematically went through it. And now we know that there's next to no genetic evidence that can account for these differences because despite billions of dollars being poured into it, very little has come up that can account for these huge differences. I think the figure you came up with was um, 97% of the disparities between racial groups was not genetic. So it was 3%. And that was with genome-wide association studies, which really are quite powerful now. Well, of course, genetics has hugely undermined our ideas about deep-seated racial difference. And sometimes to the surprise of some geneticists who are expecting to see, for example, some kind of exceptional genetic groups in faraway places, <laughs> among indigenous groups, for instance, or groups that have been isolated for a long time. And even they are not particularly genetically exceptional. So the vast majority of genetic difference is at the individual level, not at the group level. That experience I had as Director of Public Health looking at the data and feeling really sad looking at the data, uh, young people dying, that was at a group level. It was the black Africans within the population who were having the strokes, who were having the complications of childbirth. So what do you think is going on then at a biological level? I mean, 2019, there was a review of high blood pressure 
in ethnic minority groups mentioning these things about low renin and poor salt handling. So what's your explanation for that? Well, this is what Cooper and Kaufman looked at. They looked at all the studies that we had. We don't have molecular proof that can account for these huge disparities that we see. But we do have studies that appear to suggest that in a slight but measurable way, people respond differently to hypertension drugs. And this is part of the reason why even in the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence guidelines in the UK, they recommended treating people under the age of 55 differently depending on their skin colour. But when Kaufman and Cooper looked at all these studies, and they asked a very simple question, given all the medical data that we have, how likely is it that an individual placed in a given racial group will benefit from a drug? And how likely is it that someone left out of that group for racial reasons and not given the drug could have benefited from it? The data said that for 100 white patients given ACE inhibitors, 48 of them would fail to respond as hoped. So that's nearly half of those patients. Meanwhile, if 100 black patients were given this drug that if you're under 55, the guidelines say you shouldn't be given as a drug of first choice, 41 of them, so nearly half again, could have benefited from it, which means assigning treatment by race for hypertension, something that is done in the UK because the guidelines suggest it should be, is, according to Kaufman and Cooper in their studies, only marginally better than flipping a coin. A lot of hypertension is not genetically based. People will know my mother has hypertension. It is because she puts too much salt in her food. And this is a, in her case in particular, it's partly a cultural issue. But in the UK and the US in particular, there are huge differences in how people live based on race that start at birth. So even for young people, this is going to have an impact. There are so many things that correlate with hypertension, high blood pressure and race, including level of education. If you're an immigrant, even the stress of racism, there are studies being done showing that this can impact your blood pressure. So to reduce it to something for which we do not have molecular evidence seems hasty. (laughs) to say the least. And this is where the gap lies, I think, sometimes in the way that the literature is presented, is that it leans on this idea that there must be a biological difference, which there could be a small factor in that, possibly, because I'm not saying that genetic difference is random between populations. Of course, it's not. But certainly in this case, environmental and social factors play an enormous role. And one of the reasons that we can be sure of that is because the lowest rates of hypertension in the world are in Africa. The highest rates in the world, when you adjust for other factors, are in Finland and Germany. So to kind of sum it all up, you don't think we should be measuring health by ethnic group or by race? No, I do think it's a useful variable to have, but we should understand it as the social variable that it is. Mm. Within your family there will be genetic commonalities, of course. And this is why you see genetic conditions run through families and even within communities when those communities are very tight and close to each other. And that can lead to even within certain small populations, diseases being more common than they are in the general population. Tay-Sachs is a very good example here. But that isn't race. That is something different from race. And the problem with using skin colour or these very broad racial groups as some kind of proxy for human genetic difference is that it doesn't fit very well. It's actually a very poor way of understanding human difference. Monique, let me come to you. What's your take on this? 
I so 100% agree with everything Angela has said. I so appreciate how she has exposed it. And let's talk about in terms of even genetic differences. They've shown that the intra-race genetic differences are greater than the genetic differences between races. So basically, the genetic difference within someone who's characterized as black within the black community, so to speak, is more than the difference between somebody who's characterized as white and somebody who's characterized as black. And in terms of the quote-unquote biological effect, it is really due to structural racism and racism in many forms. And why I say that is one example is Dr. David Barker, UK, Dr. Ken Thornburg, US, have done work in epigenetics. And they've found that epigenetic changes, they don't change the genes, but they change how genes expressed that can be passed from generation to generation. And they've noted that stress, included chronic stresses of racism, can cause those epigenetic effects that affect the children of people suffering those stressors and the grandchildren of people suffering those stressors. And those stressors could be both economical and racial discrimination. Another effect that is quote-unquote biological, but due to the stress of racism, is something called weathering, quantified as allostatic load. And that's the work of Dr. Arlene Geronimus. And she found that Black women have a biological age 10 years in excess of their chronological age because of the stresses of racism. And another example is the work of Dr. Elizabeth Black, born where she discovered telomeres, the protective tips at the end of chromosomes. And when she first did her work, she found that chronic caregivers had shorter telomeres because of the stress of giving chronic care to someone who's ill. And she found that non-poor Black women also had shorter telomeres compared to white women and even men. So what happens is the stressors lead to having diseases at an earlier age than one would. And then the environment for many Black women in America, because the average wealth of an African-American, according to a study in 2019, is 15% the wealth of an average white family. So that economic stress, the racial stress, the biases, they all add up. And then, of course, we know that behavior affects health. Angela talked about her mother eating more salt. If you're in a low-income community and you do not have access to fresh food, you will eat what you can get. And what you can get is unhealthy for you. And also what they've found in studies is air pollution in areas where predominantly Black people and people of color live are worse than air pollution in areas where predominantly white people live. So there's a multiple of factors that, yes, ultimately they have a biological effect, but nothing to do with the genetic effect. So we've talked about our biologies, our genetics isn't really the kind of main culprit behind all of these things, these disparities that happen. We're talking about racism here. How would you define racism? Monique, could we take a definition from you first? I don't want to say a definition that's not eloquent as was put, but basically, in summary, it's just a multitude of ways where people are discriminated against by others. For example, Hillary, you admitted you were taught a certain way. 
it wasn't your fault. It's ingrained. And when we're taught a certain thing, when you think back to anything we're taught when we're children or through our life, it's really hard to undo that. So when you're taught that someone is inferior your whole life, and it is taught that, to be clear, we're Black people, even if you don't want to believe it, it's hard to undo the thinking, the way you were taught, the way, what was ingrained in you. And that's the problem with racism, the negative ingraining. But can I just come in there? Sorry, Mm -hmm. Monique. So it's quite difficult for people because I don't think I was ever taught that different races were inferior, but that they were different. And as a doctor, you kind of need to know that so that you've got a heightened awareness and a heightened trigger for action. So, for example, Dr. Tom Barber was one of our guests on a recent podcast, said he had conducted a study showing that South Asian populations had the same risk of diabetes at a BMI of 24 compared to a white population at 30. So as a doctor, you need to have that heightened awareness to say, OK, I think I should check your HbA1c now. So in a sense, that to me doesn't sound inferior. That sounds like something that is a call to action. What am I missing here? The implicit racism that's taught, Hillary. So for example, you didn't think you were taught any racist policies, but it was implicit. It's implicit in everything that you learn. For example, I grew up in Jamaica, did very well in school, earned a place at University of Pennsylvania. I was very confident of my academic proudness, so to speak, in Jamaica, did very well in O-levels and A-levels, which, you know, the British system uses, came to Penn, got a year out of college because of my grades. But yet, once I stepped in the U.S., I felt I wasn't qualified to be at the University of Pennsylvania because of affirmative action. Nobody said to me, Monique, you were inferior. It was implied. It is implied with stereotypes that go over and over again to say, you're better, you're less better. There was even a study, you know, about brain power in Black people in America versus other races. I mean, you may not be directly taught, but you were taught, and you may not have been directly aware, but it was taught. So what they've shown is that because of that, healthcare physicians who we hope are better than everybody else, quote unquote, in terms of how we think in our empathy and our caring, have the same level of implicit bias as everybody else. We cannot help the system that we were groomed in, that we're taught in, and the negative constructs, even though we didn't realize they were negative, of the way we were taught right throughout. And that is racism in itself. We don't even know what we've been told, the negatives of what we've told, and how it affects our actions. We generally, to our heart, believe, oh no, it's just differences. We thought genetics. I remember her hearing many were genetics, but no, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, so that sounds a bit more like institutionalized racism to me, but we also have things that happen on an individual level. So on a daily basis, for example, we might be subjected to microaggressions. Could these be contributing to the weathering you did uh, mention a little while back, Monique? Absolutely, yes. And your example that you shared is a microaggression in the sense that when you were 
asked a certain history and you wondered if you would have been asked otherwise. You know something is off. You know something is different, but you don't realize it at the time because you're, it, it's almost a shock. But then the shock affects you negatively. And then you get another one and another one. And then at some point you realize and say, oh, it is because I'm a person of this race, of this ethnicity. And oh, it is happening to me again and again and again and again. And yes, the stress of that discrimination. So absolutely, yes, that plays a role. Angelo, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well, if I may. I completely agree with you. And I can feel the frustration because I feel the same a lot. I'll just give you an example. So at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, there was so much speculation on the part of medical doctors as well and medical professionals, researchers, about racial differences in who was catching the virus. It was bizarre. It would be the first time in history that a virus affected races differently if that had been the case with COVID-19. And yet there was this widespread assumption (laughs) that this was possible with this particular one. And I couldn't believe some of the things that I was reading, some of the stuff that was being published in the medical literature, serious medical literature. I wrote an essay for The Lancet at that time, just prompting medical researchers to think more carefully about what they were doing because race, I cannot stress enough, is not a biological variable. It was invented a few hundred years ago because of society and politics. If you understand the history of it, there's no way that you can start to treat it as a biological variable because it just doesn't make sense. It's like talking about class as a biological variable. These are things that we've created. And The Lancet doesn't usually peer review essays. They peer reviewed mine twice and it got through quite easily because I wasn't saying anything that wasn't already quite clearly there in the literature. There was quite a bit of resistance. I remember one Asian dentist emailing me and saying, is it safe for me to go to work? Because I've heard that Asian people are naturally genetically more susceptible than other people. And I just said, (laughs) the reason that British Asians are dying in larger numbers, especially that year, was because we tended to work in frontline professions more than anybody else. The virus hit London first. London is a minority white British city with a huge British Asian population. So, of course, the statistics are not going to look the same as if the virus hit everybody equally in exactly the same way across the UK. And yet these weird assumptions, these myths circulating on social media, this misinformation propagated, I have to say, by experts who should have known better, who should have held back before they made these claims, that did a huge amount of damage to the way that people thought about race, did a huge amount of damage even later in take up to the vaccine, because people had started to conflate race and the virus in their heads. But then George Floyd happened. And after the murder of George Floyd, I noticed everything was different. Suddenly, The Lancet invited me to be on their COVID-19 commission. 
suddenly all these physicians were writing to me saying, oh, Angela, you were right after all. And I just thought, this is bizarre. I wasn't saying anything that wasn't already in the literature. Why is that history and that understanding not already integrated into the way that you were trained? And Hilary, just coming back to what you were saying earlier, when you said we weren't taught that races were inferior, we were taught that they were different, to be taught that races are different is the problem here. That is not true. That was a racist thing that you were taught. No, I understand that. And and it's because you're saying if race is like class, it's not a biological thing. Look, in the UK, lower socioeconomic groups have a lower life expectancy than higher socioeconomic groups. In the US, black Americans have a lower life expectancy than white Americans. That race difference in the US is biologized. The class difference in the UK isn't, but they have more in common with each other than anything else. You know, why do we biologize one and not the other? Yeah, well, good point made. Can I just ask you about internalized racism? So I wondered whether you were kind of in a way referring to that when you were talking about uptake of vaccine and people from different ethnic groups responding themselves to the threat of COVID. Well, if that's all that you know, because that's what is circulating in the information environment around you, then of course that's going to have an impact. You know, I did an event last year looking at racism in the NHS. The BMJ and other journals have done some really good work lately, surveys that have looked at the experience of racism of not just patients, but staff within the NHS. The NHS in the UK has a disproportionately high number of ethnic minorities working within it. So we know that representation itself hasn't made a difference there. And that's not to say that it's equal at all levels. Obviously, at lower levels, you have higher proportion than you do at the highest levels. But at the point at which you're getting your care, so from a nurse or from a doctor, there are a disproportionate number of ethnic minorities working there. And yet we still have racism. We still have these myths circulating. And that's because... The way that you are taught, the world in which you live in, you will take what is there, whatever prejudices are there, become your prejudices, whether they benefit you or not, whether whether you deep down believe them or not, whether your politics align with them or not, makes no difference. If that's all that you know, then that is going to be reflected in your work. And that's part of the problem with the medical profession is that we do have diversity in medicine pretty good, actually, gender and ethnic diversity. And yet we still have problems with racism because the way that we are trained, the way that we understand race as a society hasn't moved on. Right. Let's wrap up now with what do we do about it. Angela, you carry on. Tell me what you think we should be doing about racism and health. Well, first of all, I feel that the social sciences and humanities need to be integrated into the way that we teach race. So every year I've been part of a panel at Harvard Medical School for incoming undergraduates in which myself and historians come together and explain the genesis of the idea of race to students, break down what it means to use race in medicine and how to think about it more accurately, to remember that when you're using it, you are talking about something that is heavily socially and politically defined, that varies between countries, that varies even over time. So for example, I moved to the US two years ago If I had moved in 1971 instead of 2021, I would be officially categorised as white. I'm now categorised as Asian, but in the US, 
people of Indian heritage were categorized as white in 1971. So we have to understand that these categories are not fixed, they're not static, they're always moving. And the reason for that is because the social conception of what race is, the social meaning of it is always changing. Monique, what do you think we should be doing about it? So Yale also has integrated a lot of teaching into health equity in the medical schools. And I am very hopeful for the medical students coming up because they know way more than we did. They're exposed, they are taught. However, Training only works if people are concerned about learning, if they're concerned about making a difference. You can try to train someone who doesn't believe, they will never believe. You can tell them and they will just dismiss it. However, if someone is motivated and open and recognize that they may have limitations in their beliefs, then I believe there is a great deal of hope. But also, we need to put in a great deal of social support, financial support for the races, Black people, for example, in America, that were left behind because of racism. For example, there's so many structural racist policies were put into place that has disadvantaged Black people in America. That's why their financial situation is what it is. And there needs to be input so that they can catch up. If you start a race like a hundred meters behind, how can you ever catch up when not only are you starting behind, but you're always kept behind? And that's the problem. So we need to have targeted support for people who fall in that categories, health support, financial support, housing support, education support, so that the gaps can be closed. And why it's important that we even list the categories of race, not because of the genetic difference, but we do need to identify that people who self-identify as Black are treated differently, are disadvantaged, and may need more social and health support because what racism has done to get them where they are now. And I want to add, having conversations like this is important because even a few people will listen and hopefully their eyes will be opened and hopefully they will think differently, even about things they were taught their whole lives. And to be clear, as a Black person, you are not exempt from holding racist attitudes against other Black people because you were also told that your fellow Black people, so to speak, were inferior. And so even within the communities that experience this oppression and racism, there are people who are supporters and advocate and work, and there are people who do not. Overall, however, though, when we look at even health professionals and we look at biases, you find on average Black physicians have less biases and they do give better care to Black patients because overall the biases are less because some Black health professionals are pro-Black and will support. Some may not be, but overall the effect is positive. I read a study on that. Infant mortality was halved when the care was given by someone of similar racial origin, which is shocking. I mean, these are babies, you know, not getting fair care. As a medic, you need to be aware of what's actually going on in your patient. But to have that level of difference based on the colour of skin of the doctor, 
it in a way encompasses everything you've both been telling us that all these things that are happening at institutional and personal levels and internalized levels and it feels like a massive task to overcome this isn't it well you know in my own experience my mother had breast cancer this was about five or six years ago and I remember my friends in the NHS telling me Angela go with your mum to every single appointment be at the hospital every day that she's there with your sisters because if they see that you a middle-class, well-spoken person are there, then they will treat her, someone who has a heavy Indian accent, whose English isn't perfect, minority, immigrant woman, they will treat her differently. And the fact that even my friends in the NHS believe that, I think um, it wasn't a wake-up call to me because I I grew up in southeast London at a time when the BNP was active and Stephen Lawrence was murdered. You know, I encountered racism on the streets all the time. But... We have to remember that we can't imagine that just because someone is educated or they work in a profession that they are somehow immune to this. We are all affected by it. We are all raised in this environment and in small and subtle ways, but also in big, overt ways, it affects every single one of us. I'm Monique. I want to emphasize the point about implicit is unconscious. You mean well, you truly mean well, but this bias was built into you. It is not your fault that you have it. It's just your responsibility that you do the work so that you can weed it out and you can be aware of it and work can be done. Harvard has implicit association tests that you can discover your biases and you can do the work to educate yourself. And so self-blame has no place in any of this, because I think it can impede or progress. When you care, you can do better. And if you're committed, you will do better. We all will. It is a big problem, but Rome wasn't built in a day. It takes time. I do believe things can be better because we're talking about it, we're caring about it, and we're working towards a better solution. And that's a great place to end with some hope. So Dr. Monique Rainford, Angela Saini, thank you both so much for coming, for challenging us, for being there with us to help us start doing the work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Yaz, thanks for being with me. Thank you. And thank you for listening. You can read more about racism and health in Yasmin's accompanying feature on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be back next month talking about inflammatory bowel disease. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today.